to the very first episode of Up and Away. On this episode, we're featuring Barry Rogers of Air to Air Aviation. Barry has had an interesting and diverse career in aviation until now, which has included being the manager of Parafield Airport in South Australia. And his latest venture, Air to Air Aviation, will be the first aviation company in Australia to build electric aircraft. So fasten your seatbelt and let's go. Hey Barry, welcome to Up and Away. Fantastic. Thanks, Chris. It's uh, great to be here. I'm looking forward to a chat. Cool. So I know you're doing a lot of interesting things at the moment, but I'd first like to start with asking you, when did you start your aviation career and what got you into aviation? Wow. Well, it, it was a very long time ago, which will leave the numbers out, but I guess I was uh, about eight years old and um, living in New Zealand and we had a, a pretty uh, pretty cool headmaster and he had his pilot's license. So he would take uh, kids up for a fly and a little one Cessna, Cessna 150 Aerobat, uh, you know, weekends or after school. And, and not a lot of parents were really keen in those days, but at least mine were, uh, I guess, you know, gave permission. So I had a couple of flights, did some aerobatics with him. And, yeah, I guess it sort of stuck around. I, I took him for a fly um, many, many years later. I went over and found him. He was then a professor at a uni. And, uh, do you remember me? Good. That's, I'll meet you at the airport. So, you know, so payback's a bitch. But <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so, what aerobatic stuff did he do with you? Yeah, uh, look, we just did a few a few rolls and a, and a couple of spins and stuff. Nothing, something I sort of vaguely remember, but I remembered it was really fun. But yeah, so so you know the bug. I guess the bug hit then, and it's it's been there ever since. Yeah, wow, that's definitely a way to get into it. Absolutely, yeah, and you know that um, I guess progressed to well, I really want to learn to fly, so I did. I, I ultimately, uh, as I got older and got into things and started taking lessons when I moved to Australia. And, um, yeah, it was probably one of the best things I've ever done. Yeah, I imagine that was pretty inspirational, having that for your introduction. Absolutely. I think everyone's had some kind of interesting beginning to their aviation journey where they were like, from now on, this is what I want to do. Yeah. I remember as a kid getting taken into the cockpit of a Qantas flight, going to see my grandparents wow. in Queensland. These days you just can't do that anymore. Uh, the good old days of uh, I, I did the same thing many times, and the good old days of I've even landed uh, in the cockpit of a 747 on a US Australia trip. Oh wow! Many back in, in the jump seat, and you know we yeah we just can't do it, and it's just a shame that kids uh, don't get that opportunity anymore. Yeah, I feel like it would impact the level of people wanting to become pilots these days, not having opportunities like that. I've got a firm belief that you know more exposure. To the younger crowd to aviation like that uh, and more work by the airlines to, to and they do it don't get me wrong airlines do a lot of work to to encourage future aviators but yeah we don't get the access we used to yeah totally and i guess it's you know for everyone's safety in a in a way but i guess it hasn't been replaced by anything or nothing that i'm aware of not really no it's really back to the to the flying community now to to make that accessibility uh easier and we, look we do a lot of that i do a lot of that i always have done a lot of sort of you know, um, uh, school kids, I remember when I managed uh, an island for a while, the Air Force would come over uh, in the C-130s uh, quite regularly. So you we'd get advance notice, and, and every time we got a plane, we virtually took the entire school of 35 children uh, down to the airport, and the Air Force guys were great, you know. And I know that one of the kids um, – who uh, one of the students there is actually in the Air Force now. So, you know, it does pay off. We've got one out of 30. So. <laughs> yeah, it's still a good hit rate. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. 
So uh, when you were learning to fly, what kind of planes did you start flying in? The 152, which is a little two-seat Cessna. Um, kind of got sick of that and uh, probably, well, no, I didn't get sick of it. Let me rephrase that. I was making a bit more money then so I could actually get, I could pay a bit more for my lessons. So I then progressed to a 172 um, Cessna. Uh, a little bit faster, and that meant when I was doing um, uh, some of my uh, cross country with the instructor, I could take a mate along as well. So that was kind of fun. Uh, and you know, they say you have a favourite in life. I think the old Cessna 172, well, it used to be, is <laughs> uh, was really my favourite aeroplane. I ended up buying one um, not not too long after that when I had a job change and went overseas. Uh, and look, I flew that thing around America literally um living in los angeles and flying a, a, an airplane in the lais space was probably the best fun i've ever had because their navigation systems and their their um, air traffic control system over there was just you know really um <clears throat> probably bar none the best and you come home and fly in australia and it's a long way between navigation points and it totally. wasn't those, yeah and there's so many places to land <laughs> absolutely yeah. so yeah think um you know that was that was probably the uh the plane of choice for me um you know looking at where at, at what the some of the blockers i suppose for for for, for flight training you know when you grow up you leave school and the last thing you want to do is study yeah. so, <laughs> <laughs> so i found that to be a challenge uh particularly uh, I, I screwed up my navigation a few times and ended up on the wrong side of the railway tracks but you know overall you know i think there were two challenges for me early, and that's like every every young pilot aspiring to, to learn to fly. It, it comes down to money at the end of the day, and if you've got a lot, that's great. If you don't, you've just got to be patient and, and do those lessons when you can. Uh, my advice, uh, having become a flight instructor for helicopters later on, is that you know we would have people that had the ability to do all their lessons in you know two or three months, uh, and some that couldn't, and my advice was try and try not to have them too far apart because what, what I used to see was a fair amount of um, younger younger students having to spend that little bit extra to catch up from a previous lesson and they hadn't flown for maybe two or three months. So it's it's a hard one to try and balance. Um, but I found that to be a challenge as well. I'd probably spend 20 or 30 minutes re-familiarising myself on a lesson. I should have just been off and doing what that lesson was all about. So. That's a difficult one to do that. Um, things are different now, of course, as you know, with um, cadetships and, and vet fee help and student loans and uh, anybody wanting a career in it, it's a little easier to uh, to, to get going. Uh, you've got to pay it all back, but it's a little bit easier to get into it nowadays. Totally, yeah. And I guess unless you get your high-paying airlines job, you probably won't be paying it back. <laughs> that's, oh, that's right. <laughs> What kind of balance in terms of regularity did you find worked for you in terms of you not having to relearn or go over stuff you'd already learned in the past? How often would you have to do flight training? I'd find if I could get at least a couple of hours every couple of weeks, um, I've, I found it was a bit easier. It's still, it's still with you and and you can pretty much stay on track. Um, you, you start doing an hour every other other week or month and it doesn't really work. If you can cram it and do, you know, um, a full session like they do in the flight schools, um, you're there to learn and study. It's a different, it's a different environment. But as a, you know, I guess a part-time student, if you will, yeah. Look, my my view and experience was at least try and keep up a couple of hours uh, a fortnight. 
Um, and you said you owned a Cessna 172. I did. Yeah. yeah. What's it yeah. like owning a Cessna 172? What do you have to do? I know a lot of people would love to own a Cessna 172. What do you got to do? Like anything with navigation to start with a fair bit of money. <laughs> no. Uh, look, it was good to. It was. Uh, it, it was great to to buy my first plane. It wasn't a heck of a lot of money. Uh, it was great to buy my first plane. It was great to buy the plane. I a plane that I'd essentially learned to fly in, so mm, I didn't yeah. have to relearn another airplane. Um, yeah, I don't know. I can't even. I can't even think about what that was like. It was a big day. It was an momentous day. I went to the airport. The guy was there. We handed over. Um, I went for a check flight with with an instructor in it, and um, you know, I think I did most of my my real learning um, after I got my license, and that's fairly common. Uh, and I did. I, I had a big playground to plan, and I flew virtually. Um, apart from working in, in, in my own business, I flew every day of the week. Wow. Do you remember how many hours you had after owning the Cessna 172? Yeah, around about 600 in the in wow. the Cessna, the 172 in the end, and that was that was great. And then I moved on to other things, so I sold it. But yeah, um, and I did most of that in in the continental US, uh, just just on weekend tours and going. We used to have a group of us with four airplanes, and we'd go fly camping. So we'd take off for for some place, have all our gear, and our um, stuff and we'd spend a weekend at some airfield or fly park or whatever my plane being a 172 was the the tail empennage was always the bar because i had the lowest tail so oh, right. <laughs> flying home cleaning the, the wine uh wine stains off the tail but anyway <laughs> but yeah look um i think i think owning your own plane it's it's you know there are there are elements of it cost in there that you yeah, it costs a little more sometimes than just renting, but mm. but ultimately, um, I looked at it as an asset as well. So it was it it, it it literally paid for my flying basically. Yeah, I guess there's things like maintenance and stuff, but you just have to get that done. You do, and I was a great learning curve for having your own plane. You know, when we all used to just rock up and go for a lesson, you don't think about what poor old owner of that airplane is having to go through. Yeah whether it's with a flight school or whether it's a private aircraft. So you, it was a great thing to do to learn you know, and be disciplined about your um, you know, your maintenance and, and, and all the regimes that go with that. So it was it was a good learning curve and probably pretty valuable, I think, for later on when I bought a few more aircraft of different types. So it was uh, it was a good, way, good place to start. Yeah, and being like the highest selling plane of all time, there's parts for them and there's a lot of them out there. There are. There still are. There's three and a. Oh, sorry. There's. Um, I can't remember the numbers now, but I've got them somewhere. But there's. Um, there's around about three thousand two hundred uh, aircraft in Australia, uh, in that light aircraft category, and a Cessna accounts for just about half of them. Wow. Yeah. It's yeah. A pretty, lot. pretty significant. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So after all that and being in the states, where did that take you? What did you do after that? All right, well, over this, well, I'll go back to the States for a minute because um, uh, I basically went there. I started a business and um, with some mates and stuff and got out of that and made, you know, did all right. So I bought, uh, by default, I bought a Robinson helicopter franchise uh, in Los as Angeles. <laughs> as you do, yeah. Uh, well, I went, it was, it's an interesting story, that one, I'll, and I'll tell you it anyway because it was kind of a funny thing, but I, I used to use some of their, their helicopters for doing uh, site survey work and so on. And um, the company belonged to this nice British bloke and seemed like a nice chap married to an, uh, an actress. 
And um, I got a call one day, could I pop in the office? And, and the nice British bloke had been deported back to to the United Kingdom for outstaying out, out his, or not even having a, a visa. He was basically an illegal immigrant. So his wife at the time was trying to get him back, but I couldn't work with her. So I sat down one day, so I just, you know, I love actresses, but gee, she was hard. She was hard work. She had no idea what she was doing. So I bought the business offer in the end and um, went to Robinson Helicopter and did a deal and ended up with a franchise for um, Santa Monica in California, which was great. So I ended up with six uh, Robinson R22s. I built it into a uh, into bought a turbine um, a jet range and uh, three, and also had my trusty old 172 doing stuff at night time. Um, yeah, but I think you, yeah, overall, I was looking at the, our schedule board one day and looking at the student decline, uh, primarily just through, um, it was actually the fuel crisis. Uh, so I decided to sell it whilst on opportunity and I came back to Australia oh. and sort of segued into what I'm doing, uh, what I've been doing the last few years. Uh, so you got your heli license? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Cool. I did that. I had uh, about eight staff and five instructors, and yeah, no, it was uh, it was a fun thing to do. Very, uh, I found um, the chopper business in California, particularly uh, Los Angeles, very very competitive uh, from the point of view that uh, there were um, approximately six uh, Robinson dealerships within a fifty kilometer radius of each other, and that's just Whoa. way too. <laughs> yeah, you don't get anything like that in Australia, hey? Not at all. No, not at all. But the dream of Frank Robinson in those days was everyone should have one. Uh, it didn't pan out that way, but um, he was on the right track. They're quite a bit more expensive than fixed wing. Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the rate of, rate of descent's a bit quicker as well. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> How did you find uh, learning uh, heli in comparison to fixed wing? Quite interesting, really, uh, Chris. The transition was pretty funny, but yeah. You're sort of sitting there, you know, you're flying and it's completely different sort of flying, you, you, uh, how you descend, how you take off. Um, and you get two chopper pilots in a fixed-wing aeroplane and it's really interesting to see how they fly and, and vice versa. It's you, you just There are habits you just need to break and you just need to have your head, head in the right space. Um, and I found it took a bit of a, a bit of time to, to transition. It was quicker for me, though, because I, I had my PPL, uh, so ultimately I didn't have all the nav and all of that other training stuff we need to do was already done. So it was just really about flight time. I always um, watch videos of people trying to hover. Yeah. And I can't imagine <laughs> what you'd have to do to stay in one position and, and yeah. accurately. Yeah, well, hel- hel- helicopter flies, two hands, two feet. My, uh, my chief pilot used to, one of the, one of the student prerequisites before solo was they had to be able to juggle three balls. Oh, wow. So you'd, you'd go- <laughs> And seriously, you'd go to the hangar, and he was ex-Vietnam, uh, the pilot. You'd go to the hangar, and all these students are juggling, and you go, what the hell are you doing? And he, until he told me, I went, oh, wow, okay, that's pretty, and it made perfect sense. <laughs> Speaking of juggling, I heard that you've managed some airports in your time. That sounds pretty intense. Uh, look, yes and no. It was, again, a bit by default. Um I'd sort of always, you've been around them all the time and there's a piece of black stuff in the middle of the paddock and, you know, some bloke in a tower telling you what to do. And I'd sort of had a hankering to to um, get involved in it a bit. And I took a job uh, on a fairly remote island uh, off of New South Wales and it, it, it comes with an airport for obvious reasons. So the airport really became, or well, the management of that airport in particular, along with a, a range of other 
um, portfolios I had um, really was, um, I suppose, by default as well. It, it came with the job, so to speak. Uh, but it was awesome. I, you know, it, it was a great. It was good grounding to really um, to get into airport management. And following that particular role, I sort of said to myself, you know, I really just want to focus on on running an airport. I don't want to be dealing with waste management or emergencies or all that other stuff that my job came with. So when it came time to leave, that's sort of what I targeted was actually to manage an airport in its entirety uh, and 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 solely manage an airport, not a not a bunch of other things. So so I got invited to do that uh, in South Australia uh, in a regional airport. Um, which is South Australia's busiest regional airport, um, and that came with you know added added things to learn and know such as you know transport security and security screening and those sorts of things. So it was it was really really uh, a great transition for me. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. I really you know, it was one of those jobs that you just get up and you just want to go to work. What was the regional airport in South Australia you were managing? Yeah, so so well, the, the regional airport in South Australia was Port Lincoln Airport, and then uh, once that contract was finished, um, Adelaide Airport, who own uh, Parafield Airport, which is which is a basically you know, one of your big metro airports uh, and primarily a training airport, uh, they had a they had a whole field. So I uh, I was offered um, to relocate to Adelaide and actually manage Parafield. Oh wow. And that was a different airport again because essentially there were there were no you know commercial flights. It, it was all general aviation and predominantly flight training. And if we talk about busy airports, and you know we think we know Sydney and Melbourne and you know all our capital city airports. When you do a, a an airport evaluation for for how busy it is, it really relates to how many times an airplane flies past the tower. Is how many movements per annum that that airport that airport actually is doing. Yeah. Airfield, um, being a training airport, um, it consistently sits in between the top three and the top six airports in the country in terms of flight movements. Wow. And that, that includes Sydney and our major metros. So it was very busy. I mean, on a busy day, you'd have a takeoff about every 80 seconds, and you'd probably have around six aircraft in the in the traffic uh, circuit uh, utilising two runways virtually every all day. So, so yeah, a lot of, lot of challenges in that. Um, and I think really... Uh, that's that's what got me to thinking about what we're doing now. Um, you know, the noise complaints from neighbours were quite significant. Um, and in that, and I, you know, it's rightly or wrongly, and I, I mentioned um, in some briefs lately that you know, airports in major areas like Adelaide or Sydney, anywhere else, you think about Bankstown and Camden, you think Moorabbin or Essendon, you think all those places. Um, the communities grow around them. Yeah. Most of the, most of those airports have been there well before you know, any of those communities became, you know, small cities in their own right. Even Essendon, really, here in Melbourne, it's like that, that's right. Yeah. So you've got to balance the community need uh, as well, and you know, and and their perceptions, and certainly their their anxiety about, um, yeah, lots of traffic. So I found that particular role in Parafield was really about managing the community more than managing the airport. Um, and, being able to converse with the community, being able to you, you essentially um, put their mind at ease that we're not going to get much busier, but we've got the capacity to get busier. Um, in, in fact, it's interesting. I was talking to someone last week, and since COVID and lockdown, the noise complaints uh, for a lot of our regional ports have actually gone up. 
Oh, because everyone's at home listening. Everyone's at home, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was just as I was calling you, I heard a 172 fly over and I've got the flight radar 24. So I'm always like, oh, and now I'm home more. I'm like, oh, what's that? And I'm trying to pick the sound and I'm looking. <laughs> so I think everyone's more aware of it now. I'm 60 years old and I still run outside when the plane flies over and have a look. Yeah, that's, <laughs> well, everyone laughs at me, so I can tell them now it's never going to change. No, no, that's all right. It won't change. You're, it's, you're stuck with it now, mate. <laughs> so. That's good. That's good. Yeah, I was having a look at Google Maps, um, Parafield Airport, which I'm not particularly familiar with. Uh, like I've flown in and out of Adelaide Airport a few times, but it's quite close in terms of like proximity to Adelaide Airport and the city itself and the CBD. Yeah, it's nine minutes in an electric plane. <laughs> well, there you go. But yeah, it's about uh, 22 k's uh, to the north of uh, Adelaide Airport and around about uh, 8 k's uh, to the east of um, Edinburgh Air Force Base. So it's still locked in there. Wow. Uh, interesting place to fly. I love it. It's great. Um, you've got you've got very, very strict, uh, you know, basically airways in and out uh, in three different directions, actually four different directions. So it, it's pretty challenging. Yeah, so it definitely limits the way you can approach and land. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. Yep. But a majority of the work there is done is, is circuit work with training aircraft, um, and then obviously cross country where you use your your corridor and you're out doing your cross country. So there's not a lot of congestion really within the confines of the airport itself, which is which is pretty good. So that definitely leads to, in terms of noise and noise complaints, definitely leads to what you're doing now. Yeah, it does. So tell us a bit about your current business venture. I will, and it did lead to that, and and it was it was a, a calculated move on my part the contract was coming to an end anyway uh and as an airport as the airport manager and 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 working with adelaide airport um we were looking whilst i was manager at you know we'd we'd looked at electric planes or the technology uh, whilst i was employed to see what we may be able to do as an airport and it's one of those things you really probably don't want to get into that i in fact i went over and flew um the electric plane a year before i actually left the role so i to get an idea of what it was um but yeah i did get a little bit sick of you know having to defend myself in the airport and everything uh on a day-to-day basis with the noise complaints i thought well there's got to be something we can make a small difference so yeah i did i went uh, i left and i formed a business which is called air to their aviation which is a bit of a spin-off eyre which is the air peninsula where i was from um it just sounded good and i just used it so air to there was born um, in around about February last year, or sorry, June last year, um, with the specific purpose of, of investigating and acquiring and, and what I could do with with electric planes and, and quieter type of technology. I've always been um, interested in where we're heading with electric, uh, both cars and aircraft, and certainly the, the, the drone um uh, movement as well. So yeah, look, I went to Germany. Um, there's a thing over in Germany called um, Aero Friedrichshafen, which is essentially a, a well, it was annual. Uh, what it is, it's basically a showcase of. Um, it's at the Zeppelin um, Museum Airport, actually, where the where oh, the, wow. um, the Zeppelins were made on the Lake Constance and, and beautiful place. So every year they have a, an annual thing, and it really showcases what's new in in. In electric, what's new in, in lighter aircraft types, um, and I obviously having flown the People's Trail before that trip, I uh, I met with um, Evo Boscaral, who's the who's basically is People's Trail. He um, he's founded the company in, in 1979. Oh, it's been around for a while. 
Pepper Strow has been around since 1979. It was interesting when um, when he started uh, in what's now Slovenia, but when he started building, he built was building uh, powered uh, hang gliders. But a, a, a private person could not own an aircraft in Slovenia way back in the late 70s, early 80s mm-hmm. due, to, due to the Eastern Bloc issues. Um, so they used to do all their test flying at night. Oh. <laughs> really interesting. Anyway, that all came to pass. Uh, so the electric plane that we're talking about was actually produced uh, a little over eight years ago now. So about 2012 was, was when the first one came out as a prototype. Um, so we got talking about uh, Australia and what, what we felt, um, what I felt I could do over time to to introduce electric planes more, you know, or training planes, if you will, more into the mainstream of, of flight training. Uh, so I ended up leaving Germany with a, a memorandum of understanding that we would, uh, at a future point, uh, engage a contract that we've signed to actually assemble their aircraft in Australia as our demand increases. And that's pretty exciting in itself. So uh, it's not immediate. It, it will certainly happen. Um, so we've got a license with those guys now or an, or an agreement with those guys to uh, produce over seven years once demand starts, around 265 aeroplanes. Wow. So that's the lot. Significant. So it's quite significant. And look, that market's not there yet, but it, 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 it will it will build. So. So, yeah, so we had there was was basically uh, founded on that basis. Um, we got our first electric plane um, actually from WA, um, which was a private owner that we ultimately ended up getting it from. Uh, and we're now in the process of um, uh, looking at ordering another three over, uh, in, in a couple of months' time. And the model is? It's the Valis will be the new one. So the, the current one is the Alpha Electro, which is your you know, t- 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 typical two-seat training plane. Um, it's got a range of just on an hour with about 30 minutes to reserve on top of that. So it's, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, can't go far, but you can do a lot with it. And look, it's affordable. I mean, we're looking, it's the most comparative aeroplane um, in, a, in a petrol version for, for flight training with a G, in the general aviation category is, you know, you're getting close to $400,000 where the, the Electro is just a little under two sixty now. And the new model uh, will be just close to three hundred. So, so it's still an affordable aircraft and cheaper to run. And cheaper to run. Yep, yep. Plug it in. Um, and you know, the big concern for me, uh, Chris, is and always has been, is that we we haven't seen exponential growth in the light general aviation aircraft market for quite some time. I mean, Cessna hasn't built a plane in twenty years. You know, um, when you do your research, you'll you'll see that um, the average Airplane age in our general aviation uh, category is around 34 years old. You know, so uh, to bring new, fresh, modern planes into the picture is uh, is really what this is about. Yeah, and I've heard that's partly due to the fact that aviation fuel got very expensive. Aviation fuel got really expensive. Uh, you had people like Morsesta, for argument's sake, with their with their um, basically their inspection program which was comprehensive. We were talking about stripping an aeroplane out completely and spending it, putting it back together. A lot of people just couldn't afford the cost of that, that SIDS inspection. So there were a lot of cheap Cessnas on the market that, that basically can't fly because they're, you know, they're not they're not compliant. So, um, so that put a fairly big hole in a lot of our GA fleet as well. Mm, yeah. 
it, it's definitely something my mum worries about when I say I'm going to go flying. And she's like, well, how old's that plane? I'm like, oh, it was made in 1979. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, but, you know, there's comprehensive maintenance that is undergone all the time. So it's fine. But, yes, airplanes are getting older and the training, training fleets definitely getting older as we sort of move forward into the 21st century. Oh, I'd, say I'd rather fly a 1979 plane than drive a 79 car. Yeah, me too. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. who knows where that's been in the last, you know, 40 yeah, years. You know? Yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> so Air is based in Parafield as well. It's based in Parafield as well, ironically. Yeah, I, um, yeah, it is based in Parafield. Uh, great place to be. I'm actually, uh, uh, I share a hangar with a company called Airborne Research Australia who are really... Uh, they are sort of, uh, I guess, in a way, you know, doing different things as well. They do a lot of airborne research and monitoring, particulate monitoring at high altitude, all that sort of stuff. So having my electric plane in their hangar is, is, is kind of fun. Um, and, look, it's great to be back on the field again and uh, in, a, in a completely different role. And um, as I was told, I've come back from the dark side by a few of the airplane owners by not being the manager. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, uh, you're welcome back in the hangar now. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So, no, it's an exciting new venture. It's uh, it's early days. Uh, only, it's only been a few months, really, since we've had the plane. So COVID has really gotten in the way of being able to to take it out on demonstrations and, and take people up flying. So, we've, we've it, it, in a way, COVID's given us a bit of time, or me a bit of time particularly, to, to reflect on um, – what is now a pretty screwed up market, let's face it, uh, but reflect on other things that we can be doing in that space um, that ultimately will recover. So that's that's sort of where we're at at the moment. And I guess it gives you time to reflect on where this plane can be utilised. That's right. Currently, um, what, are you, what are your plans and where do you see this kind of aircraft being utilised and what do you think its role is in aviation? Look, its role in aviation is going to be significant on a number on a number of fronts, and I think, of course, um, I guess you know we we're talking uh, about airborne research, and you know one of the things was uh, having discussions with those guys about you know quieter aircraft being able to fly uh, around um, some of their survey areas a little lower, a little slower, a little quieter. And if you're trying to count birds from a plane or a helicopter, you you, you just you won't because you scared them off. So there's we're going to have a little play with that pretty soon um where they'll do their bird counts uh and hopefully we don't scare the birds away before we count how many there are that's true and there's a lot, a lot of areas around the country and conservation areas where that would be very useful so it sounds a bit weird but that's 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 one but look in all honesty it's a training plane it's it was designed specifically for for a, um i guess a market uh and that market really is in that in that flight training um close into the airport of, you know, its home airport. Uh, and probably more importantly, it was really designed for ab initio. So your, your first 10 or 15 hours of flight training is probably its most suitable um, uh, usage, given its given its limitation of where it can go and how long your battery lasts and so on. Um, and that, that, that first 15 hours, as you will recall, as you're learning, as you go and learn, it's really about effects of control and, you know, the four key points of you know, lift, weight, thrust, drag, if you will. Um, so that's where we see ultimately a major benefit to a flight school who are, who are really putting uh, their students through those initial hours in an aeroplane that's that's burning fuel. And don't get me wrong, we're never going to uh, be, be able to, to completely replace 
uh, fuel-powered aircraft. Oh, we'll see about that. <laughs> well, not, not logical yet, but yeah, you know, in time it will. I mean, I've been told that they uh, there's a consideration they won't be making Avgas uh, in ten years from now, and that that's a possibility. Mm. Yeah. So so it's really it really is about um, you know what it can do now, uh, and yes, experiential flight for someone that's keen just to go for a spin. Uh, we're looking at a, uh, a program at the moment where once we uh, are able to take more people more often um, with the plane, is pick them up in an electric car and bring them out for their electric plane flight and drop them home again in the electric car. So, yeah, wow. So little, little gimmicky things like that. But there's a lot of people out there that really care about that, including me. Um, so to be able to do it. But, you know, we don't want to fool ourselves, Chris. We're still charging it up with, by plugging it in the wall. That's so, you know, we're replacing one fossil fuel for another, and there's some of my fans that probably shoot me for saying that, but it's a reality. So for me to be true to myself uh, and the business and, we're, and, and some of the business's um, uh, plans that we have in place will be to have the ability at, at a charging point um, where that where that recharge um, into a storage battery and then to the aircraft is, is renewable. So that's basically one of my other driving passions at the moment is to be able to have renewable recharging. So well, there's a lot of hangar roof space that could be utilised for solar panels. There certainly is, uh, and and I think look, the time will come. But so that's I'm sort of that's that's a business I'm working on in tandem with uh, their aviation as well, just so that we we really can say you know we we nailed it. It's it's a renewable energy charged aircraft and that were plugged in and charged up and i'll be pretty happy when we did when, when we roll the first one out well you guys in south australia way ahead of us anyway in victoria with batteries and <laughs> and such we've got more sunshine chris that's true yeah <laughs> today's probably the sunniest it's been in a while and it's still not particularly sunny no enough to charge a panel though. yeah exactly we get questions all the time uh sometimes from very well educated people about why why we can't um, put solar panels on the wings of the aircraft and have it charge as you fly. It doesn't work that way. We can't get you can't get enough uh, panel um, size, or you know you can't get enough input to to have a, a meaningful recharge of battery. Solar impulse, if you recall that flying around the world, I mean that had a wingspan of what ninety feet or something. So you know, so it was certainly able to and it weighed very little. So yes, I mean. But there's always been this sort of uh, comparison between, well, why can't we do what they did? Well, we just don't have the, the footprint for the solar panels, basically. Yeah, I mean, I guess the plane would uh, act differently and feel differently, you know, control-wise as well, depending on if you made the wing the size it needed to be to house that solar panels to charge it and et cetera. You never get it in a hangar. So. That's true, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, even solar panel technology these days and, there's ideas of people wanting to spray paint solar tech and yeah. you know onto objects and planes and you know roofs and stuff. So it's happening. It's happening as as we as the world progresses into into really you know more state of the art uh, and, and new technology. Look, I, I I have no doubt the next iteration of of Pippa's Trail will have another improvement. It already does now. When the next the next model out um, has a uh, basically a liquid-cooled battery system, whereas the current aircraft we have here is is air-cooled. Uh, and the noisiest thing in the aeroplane is actually the ducting fan uh, and the fans that, that cool the battery, which is behind your head in a bulkhead. You get rid of that, the plane will be like a glider. You won't hear it. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's kind of freaky. 
Yeah, it is. It's weird. <laughs> then you've got to find to appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so look, that's, so the business itself, I think we're, we were talking about that, is it's really about, uh, and the usage of the plane really is, is, is aimed at that training market and, and being able to provide really a, a cost-effective, um, not a, not an, it's not an alternative to, to, to fossil fuel aircraft. It's a complement to those aircraft at the moment. Uh, and you know, a flight school with thirty or forty, fifty planes, and believe me, there are a few around. We've done some modelling, uh, particularly with a company in Melbourne. Uh, and if we if we replace five of those aircraft with um, electric, um, their fuel bill comes down around. You know, it, it sorry, it goes down around forty to fifty thousand a month. You know, so it's it's quite significant, really. So that's really the numbers that we're playing with. This is how to how to get them in. And like anywhere, and like anything, um, you know, when the Prius came out, which is sort of hybrid electric you know, fuel, a lot of skepticism. Um, and we're at that sort of skeptical stage at the moment with electric planes. It's pretty simple. Yeah, I, I think it just comes down to exposure to the general population and the more people kind of see it and sort of experience it as a thing, particularly pilots and students, I think, you know, Absolutely. it just takes time. And that's what I find, and that's why I started the business. I find that's a role that, I, that I'm going to enjoy doing. Um, and you've got to believe in it. And if you believe in it, um, that's half your problem. Totally. Solved. And I'm yeah. sure when you say how much it costs to charge, all the students out there would be like, that's a very good idea. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it'll be about uh, with the the, the modelling on on numbers at the moment uh, with the aircraft. If you take ownership and insurance and paying for it, all that sort of stuff, um, the airplane itself, um, through through its you know the lifetime of its of its power plant or its airframe, which is two thousand hours, but that's that's near the handle there. Um, your running costs literally are less than thirty bucks an hour. Wow. Yeah. That's so pretty. It's pretty damn cheap. Pretty cheap. Yeah. <laughs> All the students are like, "Sign me up! Sign me up!" Yeah, I mean, you know, the cost of learning to fly is going to be in the range of about 140 or 50 an hour, but that's paying paying pile. Of course, yeah. So, but you look at um, what you're paying right now for your airplane that you're learning to fly, and you, you'll see there's a big difference. It's about yeah, probably roughly half. Roughly half. Yeah. yeah. Indeed. Yep. So we're talking about charging these planes. What kind of charging stations do they have or what do they need when you land at an airport? Yeah, it's basically portable. So it's about the size of a, a, a couple of very big suitcases. Um, uh, that sits in the hangar uh, or it can, it's movable so we can take it from A to B, which we've done before. Um, and essentially, uh, electric batteries are interesting things to charge. Depending on your rate of, uh, of discharge and ambient temperature, it has a lot to do with the rate of recharge. So for argument's sake, if we've got a really hot day in the hangar and the battery's hot, um, you need to reduce your power input, which we use 30 amp, uh, but we can reduce it to 15 uh, with the selector on the on the charge system. Uh, it'll take longer to charge. But you get a cool day um, and the plane may be outside, for argument's sake, and it's 14 degrees, we find we can, if we've depleted around 46% of our capability uh, or our, char our, our battery state of charge, which you don't want to do much more than that anyway, um, we can charge the thing in about 45 minutes. So it really really depends on, on time, temperature, a lot of factors. And your charging station's plugged into three-phase power in the hangar? Yeah, a three-phase outlet in the hangar, which I've modified, and, um, yeah, pretty simple. It's, uh, we've got 30 metres of cable nearly. So, yeah, we don't 
in the hangar next to the next to the plug. We can we can be a fair way out, or even outside on the apron. You're not so. plugging into multiple double adapters and power boards and stuff. No, no, not at all. <laughs> it's it's specific to it. Most most commercial hangers have got three phase anyway, so I mean it's it's pretty pretty straightforward. But so that's that's how we do it at the moment. Uh, we've had the plane off field where we've taken it to another location uh, just recently, uh, south of Adelaide. Uh, and one of the guys just came along with the ute. We had the, gen, the 30 KVA gen set in the back and the charger, and we landed. And he just parked through the fence, we plugged it in and charged it up, kicked it. To, so that was easy, you know, no no drama. You just got to be careful with your gen sets, the right size that you need. And, uh, but we learned that. So there's lots of little tricks to it. Um, ideally, yeah, I'd love to be able to say we can fly from here to Melbourne, which we were planning to do pre-COVID, and I'll touch on that in a minute. Uh, but once we get to that point, uh, when we do our Melbourne trip for argument's sake, which we will be doing as the first of our road trip, um, the, the the guys will basically meet us at pre-arranged aerodromes and recharge us and meet us at the next one until we've until we've sort of bunny hopped to Victoria. But look, it's the only way you can do it at the moment. But um, it will prove a point in a long trip like that that what I'm trying to achieve is actually feasible in the yeah, long term. Totally, and I'll have to see you when you're here in Melbourne. And have a look at one. We'll have to get you up and it might have a fly. That was the plan. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yep. Maybe we can do a special edition where we do a cockpit recording and have a listen and hear how quiet it is. Yeah, well, that's true. We certainly do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do that recently with a, 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 an ABC radio interview to give her a call from the plane on air so that she can see for herself. So anyway. <laughs> there you go. And you can have a conversation, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah. They'll be like, you're not really in the plane, are you? And you're like, I swear I'm in the plane. The plane's on. That's that's right. But on that trip stuff and, and, the, and the charging of it, yeah, look, what we need to do some distance uh, trips in the aeroplane to really prove uh, to, or a number of things to look at. Um, you know, when you start your your training for real and you get into solo and you're doing cross-country, you, you're doing cross-country for a reason. So with the electric plane, you really can't do that component of your lessons so you couldn't really do a hundred percent of your, your training in the electric plane period and, and i don't i don't i'd make no mistake i don't have a problem with that however um if we look at uh, the density of um the surrounding regional areas particularly in victoria and melbourne and also here um if you're able to fly from point a to point b within the the battery capability which call it 45 minutes to an hour uh, and charge it at that destination, you can ultimately obligate your cross-country training. So, so we're going to be taking a good look at, at what areas and what airports um, within that flight range of Melbourne uh, and the same within that flight range of um, Adelaide, particularly now as we're here, uh, and we'll be focused on those airports and working with them to have a charging system installed um, whether that's funded by state grants or more local or, or the council or whoever owns the airport, uh, and that will that will open the door a little bit more, a little bit wider for the for the I guess the efficiency of electric planes as we as we now have them. So looking forward to that project. I guess flight schools can then uh, you know um, offer a part of the syllabus to if you wanted to complete it using electric aircraft. This is yes. navigation. Uh, this is where you'd be going doing your navs. That's correct, because a lot of you, even just the training area, which we don't have, where you're going to do spins and stalls and all those other, you know, things that we do, uh, uh, the plane's quite limited for that. So so there's reasons to try and, and try and get off-site or off-airport 
to to further your training. Otherwise, we're going to be in that that ab initio phase, and we're going to stay there. So, so my view is we you know we just explore every avenue we can and what's feasible. So, in terms of flying the aircraft, what kind of characteristics does the electric aircraft have in comparison to, say, its uh, fossil fuel counterparts, particularly in training? Uh yeah, you know, it's. Um, I think I wrote to you about it. It's 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 funny. It's there's one lever. You know, you've got all your normal instrumentation. Well, not all your normal instrumentation. You've got a thumping great screen in front of you that's telling you exactly where your battery state is, and that's what you want. So it's a very big feedback. Um, and I, you know, I get questions all the time about that, about, well, what if the battery goes flat? And I said, well, do you drive around watching your fuel tank run out? It's the same deal. So, yeah, yeah. you know, battery management. But what's it like to fly? Man, it's a lot of fun. It's light. So you've got, it's a 560 kilogram airplane with your passengers in it. Um, you hit that power lever. And of course, the difference, specific difference between, um, between conventional fuel, uh, prop planes and, and the electric is, with your with conventional fuel, your power uh, uptake is is gradual, so your torque is sort of behind, if you will. With the uh, electric, once you push that power lever at 2200 rpm, it's just all go. <laughs> so it just it really just wants to get off the ground. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. I haven't even uh, driven an electric car, but that's what I've heard about yeah. electric cars as well. I mean, there is the capacity uh, in downwind and sort of on descent. Uh, to power right back and uh, not right back, but um, and have the have have some energy uh, uptake uh, just by feathering, well not feathering, but windmilling the props. I don't uh, I don't recommend it because I don't recommend low power settings for students beyond their capability. Yeah. So we're not advocating that the plane will recharge whilst it's airborne uh, on a high on a long descent. Because what you what you what you gain, you really lose. You know, at the other end, you got you got there slower, so you you haven't got enough flight time. So there's yeah, we're going to get rid of it out of the manual period. Um, I don't like it. Um, but it, what what you know, the other thing about electric is that's really what you've got. You, your conventional instruments, um, exclusive of all the ones that are that are engine management. Um, so you're not worrying about fuel. You're not worrying about um, you know, basically you know how far you leaned it out. I, I remember my first lesson. Uh, my first cross country in, in my one set were in a one seventy two many many years ago, and getting to altitude and I'm leaning it leaning it leaning it leaning it and then stopped and you know that that fear factor which is immediate uh, it's amazing how your training kicks in on oh, shit push the red one in real fast <laughs> yeah <laughs> totally yeah and then turned the key again and it went dead quiet for you know probably it wouldn't have been ten seconds but it was enough to go I'm not doing that again yeah, enough to freak you out. Yeah, so you don't have you don't have that electric plane. It's really it's really quite simple. You know, we've got electric trim, so you get it up to where you're going, and it's it's great. Just level it out and trim it. Uh, obviously, you know, it's got conventional flaps like in a conventional aeroplane, which are not electric. They're um, flaps like in an old, like probably like in a Piper Warrior, uh, um, and really not much else. It's pretty. You know, there's only three things moving in that plane. One is one of those is the wheels when you touch the ground. Or when you're flying, it's the propeller and the prop shaft. That's it. I guess there's a few things missing off your pre-flight checklist as well. Missing off your pre-flight checklist. <laughs> but you're substituting that with, your, you know, your first – I mean, my first thing or place I go with pre-flight is, is to both battery compartments because uh, it has two batteries in it, um, one front and one rear, or four and aft, as I should say. Um, and basically what you're doing with those is you're looking at what your state of charge, what your state of health of your battery is, 
which is indicated in the battery, as well as your state of charge. So you're not going to go flying off with 50% battery state of charge. You're going to you're going to take off with you know, 90 to 100%. So, and you'd want to make sure they're connected as well. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. In terms of uh, who can fly this, um, you're wanting to use it in training scenarios. So I presume it's quite easy to fly, as you were saying. So I presume you wouldn't necessarily need any kind of type rating or anything to learn on electric aircraft. It's been an interesting transition from being a you know a GA pilot myself to to getting an RAOS license and trying to find somebody with experience in an electric plane to teach me how to fly the plane that I own. So, <laughs> Uh, and that one's that's made life difficult. Uh, we now have that in place, but but RAO's license is not about the power plant uh, when you look at, when you're getting your your rating. It's actually about the aircraft type. So single engine, tricycle gear, two two seater. It doesn't denominate the power plant. Uh, where in America it does, which is why the American plane is not certified yet because um, yeah, right. they. They can't get the head around the electric. They just can't get the head around it. So the FAA has really been taking a long time. Uh, our, uh, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority here, within four months of the plane being here or knowing it was coming, uh, basically um, the plane was certified for, for uh, in light sport for flight training in the light sport category under RPA. Um, with no specific other requirements, you know. So, I mean, it was, was really good. So, so who can fly it? You know, if you're a, you know, a licensed pilot and you want to, you know, of, of a conventional GA aircraft, um, you, can, you can get signed off with, in less than five hours and have you call it a type rate. It'll go in your logbook as, yes, you have you experience have that. in that aircraft. Yeah. yeah, and that'll include about an hour solo. If you were a brand new student that just basically uh, wanted to learn to fly that alone we've got some already um, you, an RAOS license in a in, in that aircraft configuration whether it's petrol electric um, you'll get that in about 20 hours but bear in mind RAOS is very restrictive from where you can go so you, know, you can't take your mates and you can't go out blah 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 um, until you really got the experience but in about 20 hours we'll get you a license to fly the Pipistrel uh, electric plane in that in that RAOS category, recreational aviation Australia category for your listeners. That's pretty um, cool. Pretty, it's pretty cool age wise. Yeah, fifteen and over. I mean, my son's learning how to fly it, so he's you know he's he's <laughs> doing quite well. Um, so yeah, it's no different really than a uh, conventional aircraft in terms of the age. Yeah, it still blows my mind that. You can get a pilot's license before you're off your peas. Oh, you know? I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I always think I'm quite behind the quite behind the ball in terms of my flight training in comparison to people who are 16 and you know doing solos and stuff. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So. it's funny, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, but you know, again, it's not the full answer to to your flight career. You'll need to transition to a to a fuel powered aircraft at some point uh, if you're going to progress. If you just want to own an electric plane and fly around a circuit. Until the technology improves, you're happy days. There's 39 people around the world with these planes that do exactly that. Yeah, well. <laughs> so, you know, there are private owners that basically just fly around their local airport um, and probably drive there in their Tesla for all I know. I'm not sure, um, which is ideally the perfect scenario. But yeah, uh, um, it's 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 fairly easy to to get your license in. It's easy to fly, and it's it's 
good old sort of joystick. We've gone away from the, the, the you know, the column control. And I've always found flying a, a, an aircraft with a joystick a hell of a lot easier than, than a control column. Just have. I don't know why. My landings are always better. I don't know why that is. It's funny. <laughs> it was actually the first time I sat in for my first lesson. Um, I found the control column that pulls forward and back. Yeah. Really bizarre because for some reason in my head before I got into the plane, I imagined it levering from the floor <laughs> like a like a stick, like a general stick. No. And not having done that, I, I was like, it sort of fe- felt counterintuitive to where I thought the plane was going to go because of that. Yep. It was very, very weird. So that was something I had to get over. You got to get over that, but you got to get underneath the, the dashboard and have a look at how it works. So. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's fun. It's uh, no, there's it is. It's it's um, it can be a bit challenging to fly because it's so light and there's no wing loading because you you haven't got two wings full of film. So it, it, there is a difference in that. And That's it, true. It yeah. does catch the odd gust, but it you know makes it interesting. But it's by no means dangerous. It's just a it's a different type of flying, it's like a glider really, where you the same thing. You've got no wing loading. So talking about um, more specky things, what what what's your cruising speed in that? Uh, at the moment, oh, sorry, at the moment, I was just trying to count the other day. We were doing 140, uh, oh, sorry, about 80, 80, 82 knots, 140 odd k's an hour. So pretty good. So I didn't get our, um, I didn't get our ground speed. I wasn't looking at that at the time, but yeah, around about 140 k's or, or yeah, 75 knots is really recommended. So yeah, cool. Which is pretty good, really. Mm. You, know, you, you can go, you can go somewhere. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's faster than driving. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, I think in Australia we definitely need to, um, particularly when this tech comes up uh, and becomes more sort of available to the general population, I think, uh, you know, people are going to see that as a good option as opposed to going on their road trip. Absolutely, yeah, you bet. It's, if you, you know, we, we need to get to a point where a couple of people and a bit of baggage um, and some range, which ultimately in my mind would be at least two hours, um, it makes it a lot more viable in the mainstream for, for recreational use rather than what we're aimed at at the moment. But, look, that will happen. I mean, you know, we've got to start somewhere. I, I think I made an analogy recently, and I think to you in writing that we're probably – I'm on an iPhone 11 at the moment. Uh, we're probably at iPhone 4 in terms of battery and technology uh, status with the plane. But look how long – look look how short a time it took iPhone to get where it's got to now. So, so yeah, look, it's 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 an evolving um, uh, technology, and we, we all know that. Um, I made a promise to myself a couple of years back when I started out this program that I wanted to be involved in in new aircraft technology, not just this, but what we're seeing in terms of drone and uh, urban air mobility and all that sort of stuff. And um, yeah, it's moving ahead. It really yeah. is. So yeah. it's a pretty exciting time. Totally, it's an exciting time now. But how do you see the future of electric aviation in both Australia and more broadly around the world? The future. <laughs> Look, I see. Uh, I guess I see a fairly finite uh, market for the technology we have it at the moment, but I certainly see, and I think I said to you, I wish I was 20 years younger or more, <laughs> you know, aircraft will develop beyond what we're talking about today with the Pipistrel uh, Alpha Electro. There are companies uh, around the world, and using Australian technology, I might add, a company, a company called Magnix, which is a Queensland company, very well funded, have been putting you know, battery systems and conventional aircraft for test flight. Um, there's a seaplane company uh, in, um, I think, Seattle, Washington State, or maybe it's, I'm not sure it was Alaska, who is converting old de Havilland Beaver, you know, the big old radial engines to electric. They've done wow, the that's cool. test flights. It, it comes back to technology 
you know, if we could get uh, the battery packs in this in the purpose drill are 35 kilos each. Okay, not easy to get in, not easy to get out. Um, once we can get battery technology smaller, lighter, jeez, um, okay, smaller and lighter, um, what we'll see then is the ability to go further or add more or or add or substitute that weight with with useful things like bodies on seats. So look, it's early days. There there are companies or there are airplanes as big as I think a BAE one forty six big twin engine jet. Um, there's an electrified version of that that's just currently being built. So look, the the dream isn't isn't dying. I think in, if anything, it's finding that right balance of okay, we've got a yeah, not, not, aviation comes to mind, which is a plane called Alice, which is uh, an Israeli company, 19-seat fully electric um, commuter plane in development at the moment. That's very cool. It was until it caught fire in Texas, uh, in Arizona last year. They'll take things back a bit. <laughs> but, uh, you know, ironically, it wasn't the aircraft that caused the fire. It was the charging system on the ground outside the plane. But oh. a bit, and I know those guys quite well. So they are out there, and I think we'll see um, – We'll see that sort of 18 to 20 seat balance between electric and and passenger capability is probably being a bit of a benchmark uh, as we move forward. Um, I'm excited by that. I can't I can't wait. Um, and if you think about it, all those little regional ports around the world um, that are ultimately, you know, within a, a 20 30 minute flight um, uh, from your capital city airport, you've got a bunch in Victoria. Trust me. Um, electric will be the way to go. Norway is a classic example where, I mean, their government has said they want their their, their regional, you know, domestic aircraft fleet electrified by the year 2030. Wow. You know, and because they have that same thing where 20 to 30 passengers max uh, is an ideal size aircraft for where those guys fly into. Shorter runways, uh, not too far away, uh, all that sort of stuff. So, so you know, it's, it's moving ahead. Um I can't see on hydrogen. We, we we could touch on as well, but I'm I'm not really up to speed on where hydrogen is at. But we will probably see some hydrogen electric hybrid type aircraft emerging uh, fairly soon. Um, yeah, there's I, I, there's there's three. I, I thought it was 170. The, the benchmark now there are 300. <laughs> I think it's 300 uh, prototypes. Uh, everywhere from a sketch on a piece of paper to actually flying um, urban air drone type aircraft. Um, in development as we speak around wow. the world 300 bloody hell there's not even 300 car models um, so you know I think we're going to see um, things change I wouldn't say exponentially I don't I, I, I'm holding firm on the belief that I don't think we'll see uh, regional or domestic electric aircraft flight as a mainstream form of transport uh, for probably another 10 years Mm. I really, I mean, I may be completely wrong, and I hope I am, but I just think the way the technology moves, I think we, we don't have the technology to realise that dream yet. That's as simple as that. Yeah, we get a base, basically, you know, a, a, a fifty kilowatt output battery that's the size of a shoebox um, and weighs you know, twenty kilos. Then we might be talking about, you know, rapid advancement, but we don't have that yet. I think, again, it comes down to exposure, where more people see it as a viable thing. There's going to be more investment in it. And we're going to see those results. Absolutely, yeah. But exciting. But before that, there's all the other things that are happening globally in terms of you know urban mobility. And, and again, 
that's all a lot of it's battery driven battery technology as well um sort of hybrid helicopter slash vertical takeoff things a lot of cool stuff have you been following that uh a little bit yeah to see stuff pop up i only flew their prototype in germany last week and it, it flies ehang um have got basically a two-seat uh you know vertical takeoff i think it's got 10 10 pods on it for for props uh that just flew the ceo of um of ehang from one side of the city to the other the other day you wow, know? So, yeah. so it's 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 out there it's happening it's like yeah. the whole uber uh air thing that they're wanting to release well uber started it off so yeah <laughs> Yeah, that's true. So it looks like electric aviation has a bright and exciting future here in Australia and around the world. Um, thanks for coming on and talking to us about it, as well as your journey in aviation and career until now. It's been amazing. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I think uh, yeah, I, I, I hope I can make uh, you know, what we've spoken about today inspires uh, some of our younger people or anybody for that matter to, to, to take a serious look at aviation. Uh, and not and not to be frightened off by the current state of affairs in terms of where aviation is in general. We will all, we will always need pilots. Um, there are a lot of pilots out of work that that would be listening to this. And look, I say to them, you know, get back into it when and if you can. You know, uh, at the end of the day, a lot may not. Um, and as the recovery, whether it's a year or two or three years, I mean, this time last year, Chris, we were talking about a global need. Um, Shortage pilots. Yeah, six hundred thousand pilots. Mm, yeah, required over the next uh, decade and a half. So, so I once we get through our current global issues, I hope we start to see it pick up. I know I for one want to travel again. I'm you know like you, you just okay, the, the concept of not getting on a plane at the moment, except for your own plane, is ridiculous. But it's just not happening. So look, I really appreciate your uh, your time today and. Uh, hope it all goes well no worries thank you very much and thanks for coming on up and away terrific thanks chris thanks for listening to episode one of up and away make sure to subscribe as well as follow us on both facebook and instagram we have a whole lot more great content coming your way so stay tuned